Okay, well, got me fired up from uh, singing this morning. It sounded really good in here. It's so, so loud. Sometimes you just want to keep doing that. Uh, but I got to talk to the men this morning about Father's Day. I, I enjoy talking to men, and so that's what we're doing this morning. Um, back in January of this year, we were in a series called In the Beginning, and I taught on man's purpose as defined by Genesis 2, uh, verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And in that series, I covered what it means for a man to work and to keep in a broad, general sense. And so, just as a quick review for us this morning, the word to work translates from the Hebrew word abad. And it's most often used in the Old Testament in relation to serving other people or serving God directly. And so from all of its uses in the Old Testament, we can conclude that a man's call to work is a heavily service-based call. That our work comes in the form of a desire for the good of those that are around us who God has entrusted to us. And then the word keep is translated from the Hebrew word shamar, which means to watch or to preserve or to guard. And it is most often used in the Old Testament in relation to carrying out the practices of spiritual disciplines or keeping the commandments of God or guarding the very temple of God. And so to work and to keep is a man's purpose according to Genesis 2.15. We are to work in the service of God for the good of those that he has entrusted to us, meanwhile protecting and preserving what God has given us. And so with that in mind, since it's Father's Day, I want to consider our purpose in relation to our role as dads. And so this morning, we're going to consider just one way that we as dads serve and protect and guard our children, and it is by instilling faith in them as we teach our children diligently as commanded by Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 to 9 that Diane just read for us. And I felt like, I felt like speaking on this today because I feel the burden of this as a young dad trying to figure this out for my young kids. And I feel the burden for dads and parents in general regarding the battle that we increasingly face to protect our children in a culture that I don't think it's unfair to say is preying on our kids. And I felt it's important to speak into it this morning in the hopes of encouraging and exhorting us to the good work of serving and keeping our children. I think that we would all agree that our children are faced with more potential pitfalls that will rob and will steal and will destroy them, and that these pitfalls come at them faster and at a younger age than the vast majority of us would have had to experience growing up ourselves. Our culture is demanding our children to face decisions to celebrate sin and accept ideologies 
that their hearts and their minds are not prepared to handle. And more than that, are not equipped to handle. Because a four, five, six, ten-year-old, twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old are not meant to be faced with what our culture is trying to confront them with right now. Many of the things being celebrated and pushed on kids, and this month is a perfect example, are perplexing and jolting to adults with fully developed brains and a much more developed worldview. Yet there's this push to make children experience such things as young as possible. Underneath the parades, the flags, the story times, the social media influencers, the drag shows for kids, the government coercion, and the corporate virtue signaling is a message to our children teaching them to embrace the very thing that God expressly warns against in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 22 to 24. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Our children are being invited and they're being coerced by men and women who claim to be wise, who claim to know better than God, but in actuality, due to the very pride that is being celebrated, God has given them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And men, we have to protect our kids from this. Now, just an important side note that I think is important. The world will call this bigotry. It will call what I'm saying to you right now hateful to stand against such things. But God calls it walking uprightly before him. See, the world wants to put everybody into one of two categories right now. But as a Christian, we cannot allow that to happen. Here's what I mean. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. I've said that a lot recently. Our fight is not against men or women, but against the powers and the rulers of the unseen that are behind all of these things. The world wants to put us in one of two categories because the world concludes you either hate or you affirm. That's it. Two categories. You're hateful or you affirm. But the Christian rejects both of those categories. We do not hate and we do not affirm. 
Because our battle is not against men and women. Our battle is for men and women. Including those who struggle with these things. Including those who push these sorts of things. As Christians, we do not hate and we do not affirm. Because the world needs God's word that doesn't fit into either of those categories. The world needs Jesus Christ who does not fit into either of those categories. And it is through us that those things will be seen. And one of the greatest ways, men, that we can defend and protect our kids against wickedness that wants to pull them astray is to teach them the word of God, to teach them the ways of God so that they have this robust Christian worldview that recognizes falsities and sins when they are confronted with them. We need to move past, we are past the times of teaching our kids cute stories from the Bible. We're past that generation that can just know the story of Jonah and know the story of Abraham and Isaac. We need to connect these stories that our children are hearing to the reality of what they're facing and the worldview that they're coming against in the world. And so as we begin to talk about this this morning, I want to pray for all of us that the Lord would help us in this. And so let's pray together. Father, you have given men and you have given women an incredibly important role to play in our homes. And Father, it can feel overwhelming at times. But Lord, I pray that we would recognize that we have a gracious God who works in abundance through our lives when we just willingly take steps of faith and steps of obedience. And so, Father, when it comes to our kids, help us, help me take those steps of obedience necessary to ingrain the truth of your word in the hearts of our young people that we would raise up a generation that can stand strong in the midst of a world where they will have to face things that we haven't even thought of yet. And Lord, we know that ultimately it is you who hold them fast. And so Lord, we pray your protection over our children. We pray that you would protect their minds and you would protect their hearts as we partner with you in the work that you have given us to raise them up. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, our our greatest responsibility that we have in regards to our purpose of working or serving and and keeping, protecting and, and watching over is in relation to our family. It plays out, first and foremost, how we love our wives and how we raise our children. And what men often need to to wrestle out and settle in our heart 
is the higher call that we have to our families over our work. We have a higher call to our families over our workplaces. And I think it would actually be rare to find a Christian man who disagrees with that principle in theory. But while many would agree with this sentiment, the pull of work and the responsibility outside of the home can be very strong for a man. And our priorities can become muddled very easily. Of course, work and responsibility outside the home is a good thing. God created us to work, and Paul, Paul even goes as far as to say in 2 Thessalonians, if anyone's unwilling to work, he shall not eat. In general, not working reveals a lack of discipline in a man. Men are to work and to provide for our families, but we are to be constantly mindful of the pull that exists to put too much of ourselves into our careers and not enough of ourselves into the precious souls that have been entrusted to us in our homes. See, the provision that a Christian man should give to his family goes far beyond material and monetary and physical provision that all comes from success in the workplace. Our, our wives and our children need emotional and spiritual and relational provision from us or else our homes may be filled with good food and lots of stuff to enjoy, but they will feel incredibly empty. Our wives and our children need a man who is not only present in the home, but intentionally engaged when he is there. When a man has a child with his wife, the value that he is implying in that decision is that he desires the child, which is the result of that act of becoming one. That he desires to have an active and deliberate role in the raising up of that child. In fact, most people don't know this, but the term raising a child, which we all use to describe our role as parents, is actually rooted in the concept of desire, of wanting to be involved in a child's life. And the term actually comes from this really severe tradition in Roman culture that occurred when a child was born. Shortly after the birth of a newborn child, the baby would be presented to the head of the household. And if the father wanted the child, he would literally take that child in his arms and raise that child up to the sky to signify his desire for that child, that that child is welcome in the home. If the man didn't desire the child, he would not raise him or her up. Instead, he would look away. And the baby would be left outside for something that was called exposure. It was a Roman practice, and you can imagine that the majority of babies would not survive exposure. And for those who did, they were often grabbed off the street by another Roman family and raised as a slave in their home. There are so many things we could unpack there. You know, what's amazing about it is 
the practice of exposure actually stopped happening in the Roman Empire when Christianity took hold. But that's where the term raising a child came from. So, man, when we think of raising up our kids, that's the concept that it's rooted in. To raise up a child is to communicate our desire for them, that we want them in our lives, that we will take responsibility for them, that we will provide for them and help them mature into what God intends them to be. So, man, our our children need us not just present and around, but to be intentionally engaged in their lives. John Tyson, in his book, The Intentional Father, he writes, The role of fatherhood is one of the most overlooked yet crucial roles in our society. The data in our own experience could not be clearer. When a father is present, emotionally healthy, and involved in his child's life, the child has a tremendous advantage in the world to navigate its complexities and challenges with joy and confidence. One of the most impactful ways that we can engage in raising our kids is outlined in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 to 9. So let's walk through just those four verses together. Starting in verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You know, Jesus called this the greatest commandment in the New Testament. Right? Matthew 22, verse 34 to 38. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So as the great and first commandment, everything that we do and everything that we are flows from it. And that surely includes the raising up of our children. For a man to raise his kids in the way that they should go, to enjoy long life as Deuteronomy 6.2 promises, and to love the Lord their God, we, men, must first love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Like the, the saying that you create what you are is true. Our children, for the most part, will grow to love what we love. And they learn what we love through our words, but also our actions. So much of what we communicate to our kids is nonverbal. We teach our children an immense amount about what we love or who we love based on how we live our lives. What we prioritize in our days and how we respond to the situations that come before us. All of these things are teaching our kids where our ultimate love and allegiance lies. And so men, are we in love with God? And do our children know that we love God? Like, are we living in a way that our children would confidently say, if asked, my dad loves Jesus? Like, just consider what's going to impress that love for God upon your children. This week, consider that. Would Ask your kids what would you say is dad's greatest priority? They'll tell you. We may not like the answer, but they'll tell you. Ask your kids this week. What does dad love most? And ask yourself, how, how do I impress that love for God on my children? 
Matt Chandler in Family Discipleship, he wrote this. Some of your best lessons as a parent are going to be habitually gleaned by your kids as opposed to explicitly explained. Your conduct is a visual aid for your family's gospel literacy. Your life well lived, walking as Jesus walked, can be more influential than a hundred lectures about your beliefs. If our relationship with God is not seen by our children beyond spending an hour or so at church on a Sunday, that does not demonstrate a strong, loving, life-giving relationship. What that actually will demonstrate to our children is a hypocritical view of Christianity because it's not being lived in the home. I know what this is like firsthand. This is what I grew up with. And it wasn't my parents' fault. They weren't Christians. They just had the mindset that they wanted to expose my sister and I to faith. They didn't know what that really meant. And so we would go to church every Sunday for the first 15, 16 years of my life. And I grew to absolutely hate it because it was hypocritical. We'd go to Sunday and listen to all these messages about God, and it meant nothing. And so if we just come to church on a Sunday and spend an hour here and go home and it's not living in our homes, all we're teaching our kids is a hypocritical view of Christianity. You know, we've talked in recent weeks through our series Created for Good Works about how our obedience is a measurement for our love for God. Right? This is what Jesus teaches in John 14 and 15, that our obedience not only flows from our love for God, but it is also evidence of our love for God. And so men, are we demonstrating our love for God to our kids? And maybe for some this morning, the more important and foundational question is, do we really love God? Is this more than a tradition for us? Is this more than a thing that we do because we've grown up with it? Is it more than a thing we come to on a Sunday because we're used to it? Do we truly love God? And if we find ourselves lacking in that, there are so many men here that could talk to you about that, that could help you in that, that could pray for you in that. So if you find yourself lacking I don't know if I really love God or this is just something I do. Like, seek a brother. Seek a man here today that loves the Lord. And let have them to walk with you in that. Raising our kids starts with our love for God. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7 then says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I paired verse 6 and 7 together because of how they relate to Jesus' teaching in the New Testament in Matthew 15. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7 states, God's word must be on our hearts, and then we must teach it to our children. And the flow from the heart to teaching is very intentional. And it relates to the principle that Jesus teaches in the New Testament when he's confronted about what defiles a man. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Right, so you've got... Deuteronomy saying, what I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach it. And Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. So man, at least two things are implicated here. First, if we don't have God's word on our heart, we will not teach it to our children. 
Our children will hear from us whatever it is that consumes our hearts. Because what it is that is in our hearts will flow to our mouths. And so if the word of God isn't important to us, we will not communicate it because humans talk about what we're passionate about. Have you ever noticed that? We talk about naturally what we're passionate about. We like to share it with other people, whether it be farming or hunting or sports or other topics. That's what we'll talk about. And so one of the best ways to know what a person loves is just listen to what they're saying. Listen to the words that come out of their mouth. Ask your family what you talk about. Go home this week and go, what do I talk about? What do you hear come from me most often? It will show you what is on your heart and will reveal what you love. Second, I think these texts make a very important distinction between the heart and the mind. Deuteronomy 6 says God's word shall be on our hearts. It doesn't say God's word shall be on our minds. And I think that's important. Having God's word on our mind, that's a good thing. So don't, don't get me wrong. God's word should be on our mind. There's no doubt about that. And scripture directs us to read it and meditate on it and know it. These are all good things. But the distinction, I think, being made here highlights to what end we do all of those things. It is about much more than filling our minds with knowledge. It is about getting God's truth into our hearts. In Scripture, the heart is considered the center of a person, where everything flows from. The heart is what directs the mind. The heart is what directs the will. And it includes the range of emotions that we have that all flow from the heart. It is the place where devotion and love and desire are birthed from. And so God commands it to be on our heart because that's the difference between having a trusting, intimate relationship with him and a contractual, legalistic duty toward him. The former is what pleases him, and the latter does not lead to a proper understanding of him. So it's not just about communicating our knowledge to our kids. We need to teach them understanding. If the word is only in our minds and not our hearts, The word of God will not be passed along to our children in a life-transforming way. Because you can't teach God-honoring love and obedience and relationship from head knowledge alone. That comes from the heart. If you teach knowledge strictly from the head, all it results in is legalism. That's what I try to do every Sunday when I'm preaching to you. I don't want to just capture your head. I want to capture your heart too. I want to bring you in and let you feel it and understand it in that way. Because if I just capture your mind, that's not enough. Your heart has to be captured. That's why I speak with passion. I want you to see it. I want you to see the importance of it. And that's what we need to do with our kids. And so, men, we should assess ourselves. Is our love 
for the Lord shown in our words? What do our kids hear us speak about? How often do they hear us speak about it? Do we speak of God's word when we sit in our house and when we walk by the way, when we lie down and when we rise? You know, are you one of those guys where you get together and it's like, man, all this guy wants to do is talk about the word of God. That's like one of my favorite reasons for getting together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I can talk about the word of God and they understand it. There's no better place than that. It's such a beautiful thing that we have with one another. God's standard for us is that his word be constantly on our lips. And then Deuteronomy 6, 8 to 9, it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, it's widely acknowledged that, that these verses were meant to be understood in a metaphorical way. Inferring the importance of keeping God's teachings uh, in, at, at hand and, and his word before our eyes. But over time, these things actually became a literal practice for the Jewish, or in the Jewish tradition. Jewish men would actually take small leather boxes called phylacteries, which contained portions of scripture in them, and they would wear them on their body in pairs during morning prayers. And so one would be tied around the forehead, signifying the frontlets of the eyes, and the other would be strapped to their left forearm, signifying God's teachings being at hand. And then in the household, a small piece of parchment paper called a mezzot would be attached to the doorpost and, and would literally, to literally follow the command that it be on your doorposts and on your gates. And on one side of that piece of paper, it would contain portions of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 and Numbers 15. And on the other side of it, it would list some of the Hebrew names of God. And these, these mezzazots on the doorposts and these phylacteries that they would wear, they were a declaration. They were a declaration to people about the individual and about the household. They were a sign to visitors that the occupants of that house, that that person had declared, similar to what Joshua did, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. One commentator writes about this practice who said, clearly such a practice might well have had deep significance for some people. The small passages of scripture were signs standing for the whole body of the law, which was to be observed and taught. But where the practice descended into one of legalism, it destroyed the whole spirit of the ancient injunction. And so there again, it's that idea that it can't just be head knowledge. This is the problem that we see with the Pharisees in the New Testament. It was all head knowledge. They didn't actually love God. They were doing these practices out of legalism. And so everything that we do in teaching our children and having the Lord's word in us has to flow from our hearts. If it's just our minds, we're not going to instill what we want. It is love towards God. It is remembrance of his faithfulness. It is confidence in the future promises of God that move men to obedience, that move men to love, not just empty practices. And so men, this week, I challenge all of us to assess ourselves and assess our faith. Right now, in this moment, 
what would you be passing along to your children? What do they know is most important to you? What do you want for them more than anything else? Then what are you going to do to steer them in that direction? I just want to leave you with this quote. God's love and covenant demands are to be the central and absorbing interest of a man's whole life. Is it yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray over the men in here this morning. Lord, I pray your strength over them. God, even in this moment, I just feel like you're saying we need mighty men of God. We need mighty men. And Lord, right now, even in this moment, I just pray that you would call some men forth as you did Gideon. As he was hiding, Lord, you called him forth and said, you are a mighty man of valor. And you called him to something far beyond what he could see for himself as he was hiding from his enemy. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would instill courage through the power of your spirit, that you would instill perseverance through the power of your spirit, that these men here would know that you love them, that your love is most clearly shown in the fact that you did not hold your only begotten son back from them, but that you sent Jesus Christ on a cross so that you could call them your son, so that they could be called heirs with Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us would step into that glorious truth that we are sons of God, that we are heirs with Christ. And, Father, that we would recognize the immense and important role that you have given us in our families. Lord, I pray for the men in here this morning that are tired. I pray for the men in here this morning that are struggling. I pray for the men in here this morning that have made decisions that have led to strongholds, that have led to addictions, that have led to struggles that are holding them down. And Father, I pray that you would begin to bring those things up in their heart and loose those things, Lord, in Jesus' name. That freedom would come. Father, I pray most of all, that your love, that your word, that your covenant commands would be the central and absorbing interest in each and every one of our lives. Because we know in a family, in a community, in a church, wherever there are strong men who are free in Christ, every other person flourishes. And so, Father, I just pray freedom. And I pray your power over the Spirit, your power of the Spirit over them now. In the mighty name of Jesus.
Amen.